Thanks for listening to another engaging message from Praise Assembly's Pastor Alan Bochamp. It's our prayer that God speaks to you through this message. Father, we thank you that Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. We thank you for that great gift you gave to us, but we thank you that he rose again and even now is seated at your right hand. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the opportunity to come to you and the opportunity we have to know, even this morning, that you are hearing our prayers. Father, right now, even before we pray over this offering or the rest of our service, I just pray for your Holy Spirit, for the work of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection to be at work in every person in this room right now. May we leave this place changed as a result of what Jesus has done. And Father, this morning, just as we have worshipped you in the same way that those first disciples, those first ladies who saw you at the tomb and, and, and they, they fell at your feet and they worshipped you, we do that not only in singing, we also do that in giving. And so Lord, I just pray that you would bless this offering, help it not only to meet the needs of this congregation, but may it pour over into blessings in others' lives. May we see as a result of this offering your kingdom continue to advance in the name of Jesus. I thank you for it, and I ask this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. 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 Ushers, if you would, go ahead and begin to serve uh, this morning. Before we go any further, we do want to just say a big, 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 big thank you to everybody who helped from Good Friday to today, um, just across the board. For those who were here late Friday night and yesterday and early this morning setting up food and coffee, uh, for everybody who participated just across the board, thank you so much. And even now, those who are volunteering and just... We're so grateful for those who are willing to be in the nursery and yeah. the preschool and kids' church this morning serving there while we all celebrate here together. We know they're having a wonderful time of celebrating the resurrection of the Lord there as well. And very intentionally in each of those ministries this morning, they are talking about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ at each of those levels just intentionally. And the vast majority of that ministry is happening via volunteers. People who say, I am passionate about helping this next generation learn what the death and resurrection of Jesus means for us. And so even as you're going to pick up your kids today, as you're, as you're going to the nursery or the preschool or back to kids' church, just say a big thank you to them. Because some of them, I mean, they dressed all up for Easter Sunday, and then they'll probably have a kid puke on them. So that is huge to us. And so make sure that you're expressing uh, uh, thanks appropriately uh, this morning and express our thanks as well. Um, but a special thanks. I, there was a group of ladies. I had promised I was not going to go out in the lobby before this morning in order to see what they were setting up with all the food and everything. And, and when I went out, they're just blown away. And so I'm just so thankful for that. In fact, let's say a big thank you to everybody who helped with this morning and, and with Good Friday. Uh, it was so very good. Awesome. And make sure to be thanking them uh, as well. And, and um, again, even as we continue on with this service, I just pray that the Holy Spirit is at work in this place and that the power of the resurrection is really raising up inside of each and every one of us and doing a new thing in each and every one of us this morning.
Um, as, a, as a pastor and as a, the leader of this church and, and as the person who has been called to preach, uh, you know, it is my responsibility, I'm paid to try to communicate the goodness of our God. And I'm paid to try to communicate um, what it's like, the goodness of the person of Christ. And I do my best to do that, and I try to continue to learn in that and grow in that. But I am continually impressed with the fact that I am a miserable failure at it. That it is impossible for me to be able to communicate adequately the goodness of the person of Christ. And I don't think anybody can do it. And yet, 20 years ago, when I was sitting at the side of a lake, right outside of Kenosha, Wisconsin, Jesus Christ came and he met with me. And he didn't come with a full theological explanation of who he is, and he didn't have everything laid out for me to understand. He came to where I was, at my capacity to understand and met me right there. Um, next week we're kicking off a series here at Praise and I just wanna encourage you to join us for it. It's, very, uh, it's just an incredibly simple series. Essentially what we're gonna be doing is just going through the Gospels and reading the stories of people meeting Jesus. Because I'm convinced as it says in Colossians chapter two, verse two and three that all of those mysteries, the, the knowledge and the wisdom is hidden in Jesus Christ. And I cannot communicate those things. And we will not know the goodness of Christ until we experience it. Until we taste it, we will not know yet that he is good. And so really that's what this whole series is gonna be about. And if you don't normally go to church and you're here today, I encourage you to take even just the next several weeks and really be intentional about coming back to praise and just seeing if as you encounter the Christ, because while I cannot communicate it, as we encounter him, I believe that he reveals it to us individually as he meets with us. Those things that are hidden in him, become, uh, we, become, we know them. And so whether you've read the stories one time or, or if you've read them a hundred times, man, just be excited about this upcoming series. I know that I am, because as we go and we meet with Jesus, I believe he's gonna do some incredible things in us and in this church, okay? So just set that side of time, be looking forward uh, to that. This morning, though, is uh, a, a special day. It's a special day. And we are celebrating something in particular. And if you don't know what that certain thing is, if you just know that you were going to church this morning because some spouse told you, that you were going to church this morning, or if your clothes were laid out on the bed ahead of time for you, you didn't even dress yourself, but you're here, and you look down and you're in pink. <laughs> I know what that's like. <laughs> um, it's Easter, and that's what you're supposed to do, and for those of you who are sitting on the floor this morning, y'all look good. Y'all look good, you look excellent. For those of you who are in the balcony, you're okay. But for those of you on the floor, you just are to the nines 
this morning. You look nice, and I'm so glad that you're here. And the reason why you are dressed up, and the reason why you're here, and your little daughters and my little daughter all wore their nicest little dress is because it is Easter Sunday, and we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is a big deal, a big deal this morning. And so... I'm glad that you're here celebrating that along with us. Um, if if uh, you don't know where we're at or if you haven't been here over the last several weeks, we, we kind of been leading up to today with, with uh, just talking out of Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And I want to read it for you, Colossians 1, 27, which is really uh, the result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, very clearly in Colossians 1.27, what I see is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a historical event, but that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a personal experience, Right? Because it says Christ in you. Now when I read Christ in you, that speaks to me of a personal experience. Does it get any more personal than Christ in you? And because it's a personal experience and more than just a historical event, whatever Christ touches comes to life. Right? Death touches it. Life destruction, he touches it, wholeness, pain, he touches it, perfection. He raises these things just by touching them and, and as a result of the fact that Christ is in us, then we have what it calls the hope of glory. And so we've just been leading up to today, starting last week with the Palm Sunday, we talked about what it meant that the what the mystery of Christ was. And if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. Good Friday service. It was about hope and hopelessness. And can I just say that the Good Friday service is very quickly becoming my favorite service of the year. Really, truly. Uh, it's a totally fundamentally different thing than we do at any other time during the year. And if you missed it, we can't recreate that moment. It was excellent. Make sure to be there next year, Right? because it's gonna be good then too. And it's very quickly becoming my favorite, my favorite service of the year. But this morning I wanna talk about, again, that resurrection and Christ in you and him calling these things to life. And, and in order to do that, I wanna read a story. And so if you would grab your Bibles this morning. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there are some that are spread out throughout the auditorium. The scriptures are gonna be up on the screen, but even as we have the scriptures up on the screen, it's always to us important that uh, we read uh, the story for ourselves. So if you have a Bible on a phone, pull it out and scroll. And if you have a, a physical Bible, grab it. And if you don't have any of those things, grab the one that's in the seat around you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, that's our gift to you this Easter, just an Easter gift. Just take that home with you. That We want everybody to be able to read the scriptures. And, and the story we're gonna be reading today, it's important that you have the Bible in front of you because we're not gonna be able to read the whole story. It's in John chapter 11. And it is one of, in fact, it's the longest of the stories of Jesus' ministry while he was on earth. The only story that you find in John that's longer than that is Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is the story that really 
kind of forms as the capstone in John of Jesus' ministry. And it leads very clearly into the passion narrative, into the story of Jesus' death and then resurrection. In fact, John is very clear that because of what happens in John chapter 11, that it is the results of the events that happen there that it really solidifies the opposition to Jesus. Um, Really, the hope of Jesus began to spread like wildfire, and as a result, then this opposition kind of solidified he must be killed. Okay, so very clearly, this turns our attention to the resurrection, and there's some really beautiful things that happen here that point us to the resurrection, and John is very clearly doing that on purpose. So, so we can't read the whole thing because it is such a long story. We'd have to take a break right in the middle and give you guys a potty break, okay? Because it's that long. It's seriously, it's, it's like six different scenes, and so all I can do is stop, and I want to pay attention to three statements that Jesus makes through, uh, this, through this story that really kind of speak to us about how Jesus calls things to life. Okay, so uh, that's enough set up. John chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says there, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, uh, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And what's really interesting is that actually hasn't happened yet. Um, when Right where we're at in chapter 11 of John, it actually happens on the next page to the right. It happens in John chapter 12, but apparently that was such a well-known event for those first believers that they didn't need the setup, right? That was such a such an obvious and, and thing that they identified with apparently so much that John just like writes it down. Okay, this is the one that we're talking about. And he hasn't even explained that event happening yet. So it's obviously so well known. But he says that these are the people whose brother is ill. And so they send a message to him. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, there are only two people that it says that sort of thing about in the Gospels, and both of them are in the book of John. Um, It's really interesting to me that John, the disciple who wrote the book of John, says it about himself. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And I think that's both hilarious and also incredibly moving Because it doesn't say that he loved any of the other disciples less, you know? And I wonder if Peter would have written a gospel if he would have called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Do you know what I'm saying? Like these people are, I mean, John and and even Lazarus, when they're talking about him, they know that Jesus loved them. Right? And to me, I guess that really speaks on a deep level to me that I want to be known as the pastor that Jesus loved, the father that Jesus loved, the husband that Jesus loved. And that's at the very least how I want to know myself. You know what I'm saying? Because Lazarus' sisters are like, this is, this is Lazarus, 
whom you loved. I don't know. Speaks to me on a deep level personally. Verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now this is a verse that should kind of catch us sideways. Because spoiler alert, if you've never heard the story of Lazarus before, he dies. And yet Jesus very clearly says here, this illness does not lead to death. So either Jesus is like, playing a practical joke on them, (laughs) April Fool's, which is a terrible April Fool's joke. Parents, don't play that joke on your kids. That's not the kind of thing you mess around with. And I know that Jesus isn't lying here when he says that this will not lead to death, which means that there's something else that's happening. Now, this is the ESV, the English Standard Version. This is the one that we always read here. This is the one that's my favorite version. It's the one that I read personally. I'm a big fan of the ESV. But the NIV, the New International Version, actually says it does not end in death. And between the NIV and the ESV, I think I prefer the NIV. Because I think very specifically that Jesus is saying this will not end end in death. And I think a lot of times there are things that happen in our lives that we think this is the end. Right? Like we, we think that this occasion we cannot possibly get beyond. And I think the whole thing with the resurrection is that it makes things that are the end not the end. Right? Like it takes things that should be the point at which it's over and makes it not over. The whole power of the resurrection, the whole thing with Christ in me, the whole thing with him speaking and changing it and the power which is happening inside of us is that it takes those things that should be the end and turns them not into the end, but instead into the beginning. And in fact, what I personally have noticed is the vast majority of the time, it's like we have to come to the end. Like we have to come to the end of our rope. And then once we come to the end of our rope, that's when God really moves in our situation. I've been cleaning out street drugs and um, prescription drugs for 12 years. And um, I stopped going to church and a couple beers with some buddies turned into a drink seven days a week. I wasn't parenting right, I wasn't being a good husband, uh, employee, uh, friend. I was ready to give up um, with my marriage and my family, and I actually contemplated suicide for the first time in my life. I went to bed and I prayed probably for about 15, 20 minutes, the hardest I've ever prayed, and I woke up 
and I haven't drinking since. Went to bed miserable and woke up different. Um, I knew I needed to get involved with Christ-like people and good friends and a foundation and get myself busy. And so I attended praise the next service that was available. Any opportunity I get to talk with them about what the Lord has done for me, I try to share that. It's changed my whole life. My thought process, my actions, conduct. I feel like I re-met my wife. You know, I re-met my children. It's everywhere. It's all over how it's changed my life. I mean, isn't that it? God takes our end and he turns it into a new beginning. And the reason why I love Nathan's story is that, like, who else was a part of that? We weren't. (laughs) That was all God doing that, right? Like, he took what should have been the end. In fact, he waited until he came to the end, and then God laid a hold of his life and turned the end into the beginning. That is the power of the resurrection inside of us. That's what Christ in us, the hope of glory, is all about. He takes those things that are done, and he turns them around and makes them not done. He makes the end into the beginning. And I love this story of Lazarus because all through the story of Lazarus, and we, we aren't going to be able to read it all because I'm just going to read a couple statements of Jesus, but all through the story of Lazarus, it's like people are talking like it's the end, right? Thomas, as they're going, is like, well, let us just go and die with him. Like, everything is the end. Martha's like, well, if you'd have been here, Jesus, then he wouldn't have died. Mary's like, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. It's all the end. And yet Jesus walks into the situation and he takes the end and he flips it on its head. And that's the power of the resurrection. And that's what I see in the story of Lazarus. He takes the end and makes it not the end. And even as we keep reading, and I'm going to skip down to John chapter 11. John chapter 11 verse 21. Let's start in verse 21 here. Because here again you see that idea of everybody's talking like it's over And Jesus is doing something else. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus says to Martha, Um, he will rise again. And Martha's immediate response is, yes, I know he's going to rise again in the end. So the end is not the end. But you know what else isn't? The resurrection. Right? Like, her immediate thought is, okay, so when is the resurrection going to happen? It'll happen in the end. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not getting what I'm saying to you. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall yet live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, first time I read that, I thought Jesus is being redundantly redundant here. You know what I'm saying? Like he's like, okay, so, so uh, I'm the resurrection and the life and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Did he just say the same thing twice? And he doesn't. He says, first he talks about the resurrection and he says, 
I am the resurrection. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Right, that's the resurrection. But Jesus isn't just the resurrection. He's also the life. And he says, and I'm the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. The resurrection wasn't the end in itself. The resurrection pointed to the life. Right? When Jesus goes up to the tomb and he issues these commands, which we're not even going to read all of them, but he does. You can read the story if you want. That's why you've got a Bible. Okay? When he issues the command, the first command is, Roll aside the stone. Second command, that's the fun one. Lazarus, come forth. And in the ESV it says come out, but dude, I'm always gonna have it as Lazarus, come forth. It's my brain, it's like wired in there. It's never gonna change. And those are, that's the second command. That's the one, it's like, okay, that's when the resurrection happens. But then Jesus issues a third command. He says, unbind those grave clothes so that the poor guy can walk. Why? Because Jesus could have gone at it a different way. Like if I would have been the one raising Lazarus from the grave, I would have went like this. Lazarus, come forth. Peace out, drop the mic. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what you think, resurrection. But Jesus goes, resurrection, and then life. And the other time he did it, he did the exact same thing. Luke chapter 8, verse 51 through 55, Jairus' daughter. He raises her from the dead, and then what does he say? Get this girl some food. Because that whole being raised from the dead thing, kind of ravishing. Like, he's not just concerned with the resurrection. It doesn't stop at the resurrection. The resurrection points to the life. The resurrection is not the end in itself. There's no, every single one of the gospels does not end with the resurrection. Gets to the resurrection, and then Jesus says, and now this is what your life is gonna look like. The resurrection points to the life. The resurrection is not the end. The resurrection is the beginning. Easter is not the end. Easter is the beginning. Kids, grew up in the Philippines, born to parents who love me, born to parents who love God, born to parents absolutely committed to the advance of the kingdom of God. But more than that, born to parents who truly believe that God was an ever-present help in time of trouble. And more than that, born to a mom who expected God to speak to her every single day to give her wisdom, to give her empowering. It's only in recent years that I've had a name to associate with this style of living. It's called abundance. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. But we miss the fact that this comes from the parable of the good shepherd. So Jesus is really saying, I as the good shepherd am come that they, my flock, might have life and have it more abundantly. You can go up a couple of verses and you hear Jesus talking about his flock. He says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep know my voice. I call them by name and lead them out. 
Everyone who heard Jesus that day knows that was a daily process. The shepherd speaking to the sheep, the sheep responding. Even today, I was in the middle of something. I'm a little tired because I'm fasting today. I'm trying to nail something down. And it's like, oh man, this isn't going. I don't know. But, but then it's just like, will you just stop? Hey, there it is. <laughs> So every day, every day, every day, there is this push. Every day, there is this expectation and this focusing to listen and then to act on that listening. We do not believe in something that's just rule and law and forgiveness and, you know, all these things nailed to the cross. We believe in Jesus Christ who is alive. And it is through that life then that he takes an active role in our lives. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. This is not just a thing that it builds to the resurrection. Woohoo! The resurrection is there in order to bring life where there was not life before. It does not end there. It just begins there. So the end is not the end. And the resurrection is not the end. And guess what? The life is not the end either. What's so interesting to me throughout this story is that Jesus is on such a different wavelength as anybody else. Right? When he's talking about resurrection, when he's talking about life, he is speaking on this level and everybody else is in a completely different place. You pick that up all through the story. And, and Martha, I love Martha. I think Martha is fantastic. And the reason why I love Martha is because I think I'm Martha. If I had to say who I am, put a dress on me, I'm Martha. Because when I interact with Jesus, a lot of times I interact on the level of Martha. And there's this part that in the story that it just drives it so far home to me and it's really the statement Jesus makes in response to Martha. So if you would skip down, skip down all the way to verse 38. And this is, this is the last passage we're gonna read here um, in this story. Verse 38, it says, uh, they, they, after he comes and everybody's moaning and groaning and mourning and all of these things that are tied together with this death, he goes to the tomb. And I think a lot of times when we read this story, I think we, I think we miss some of the depth the depth of it because death for us in this culture is fundamentally different than death it was then. For us, when somebody dies, there is this really very sanitized process that happens, right? We might see them one time after they pass away and then the mortuary comes and takes that person away, makes them kind of look presentable and maybe we have one more hour or two more hours with them and then we kind of say goodbye. And I'm not saying that's bad. What I am saying is that in this day and age, that wasn't the case, right? Who took care of the people who had died? It was the family members. And all of the stuff that they would do was really mostly, I mean, just done by them and they would put them in the tomb and they would put them in these little slabs in the tomb and then they would wait like a couple years and then they would go back in and regather the bones and put those bones in a 
kind of a different place in the tomb. And so this is kind of the experience that they, as those who had to take care of the dead, would, and so it's much more hands-on. And they would be around, I mean, what do you think is happening when, I mean, that whole process is all happening around the family and around kids. It's a fundamentally different experience, okay? So Jesus walks up to the tomb, and verse 38, after all this mourning, And then Jesus, deeply moved again, it says, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved again. It actually says twice in the story that Jesus was deeply moved. And it also says, of course, here that Jesus wept. And we don't know exactly what it means that Jesus is deeply moved. Uh, the, the, the word that's used here is the same word that's used in the pool in Bethesda where the pool would tremble. And people would know it's time to get in it. So it's like this trembling of soul. And some people say he's angry at one person or another. And I don't know. I don't know what his emotions are here. I don't know that. I do know what he says. What he says in verse 39 is this. The first of those three commands. Take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead for days. Like he starts with the first of the three statements. And Martha tries to head him off at the pass. And she's not wrong here. I mean, he's dead. He's not mostly dead. He's dead. He's D-E-D, dead. I mean, this is as dead as it gets. And it's been four days. And most definitely, when they roll back that stone, it's gonna stink. There's gonna be an odor there. She's not wrong. And so she walks up to Jesus. Now, now, I don't know if you know, but it's gonna stink. And she tries to head him off. But, but what if it had actually worked? What if Jesus would have said, you're right. When we roll back that stone, it's gonna smell. Scratch my plan. You know what I'm saying? Like, what if she would have stopped there? But before he could get to the Lazarus come forth, he had to say, roll away the stone. And, and, and when I read this, I just think over and over again, if she would have, if they would have listened to her, if she would have headed it off at the pass, if Martha would have thought, I know better than Jesus, and everybody else would have said, you know, Martha's got a good point. Let's not roll aside that stone. It's going to stink. She would have, like, totally stopped the process. And it is a process. It, as I look at the whole Christ in me thing, the hope of glory, it is very clearly always a process. I thought my parents' Christianity, their, their faith was strong enough to carry me through so I could pretty much get away with whatever I wanted. I'll get to heaven on their coattails or I'll change later. And I was a wolf. I was definitely a wolf. saw my parents as bearers, um, family members, or anybody that knew what we were into, uh, we, my brother and I, you know, identical twins, we chose to, to be as naughty as we possibly could. And um, so I think it was a nine or 10, we started drugs. We got to the States, uh, 
second year of high school, third year of high school, so sophomores, and drinking and partying and that kind of lifestyle. We uh, got involved with gangs, um, carrying weapons, um, and then it was just sin is glamorous, so anything and everything, it always goes away. There's always, and when it goes away, it is bad. It is, whether it's the detox or just the loneliness, you truly have a dark cloud, not over you necessarily, but in you. I believed that I was worthless. I was a piece of garbage. There was no hope. The things that we had done, you can't come back from. The last time I tried to commit suicide, um, my dad literally flew overnight to Alabama and kicked the door in from Trinidad and flew and um, pulled me out of the bathtub. And it was my lowest. I knew nobody. I knew nothing. I had, and I couldn't do anything. So I started singing. I would get high, feel guilty, and start singing the old time hymns. Just me in a corner watching the sun come up. And, and there was a breakthrough. And it reached me and I started going back to church and I'm serving the Lord and I'm singing in church and everything. And all of a sudden I realized, but I'm not truly in a relationship with Christ. It was this church that, that really, I started dealing with the inner, the, the, the parts of me, the foundation, the core, my theology, the way I thought, the way I processed struggles in life. I'll see somebody from my past, like at a bank or something, and they'll say, you're glowing, look at you. And I go, let me tell you about Jesus. What I, what I love about Christ in you is that it says that Christ in you is the hope of glory, right? It doesn't say Christ in you is the glory. No, it is the hope of glory. Christ in you is a deposit for what will be. The Holy Spirit inside of us is a deposit of what will be. It's a process, and we're not there yet. So the end isn't the end. The resurrection isn't the end. The life itself isn't the end. We're still kind of in process, and we're still kind of working through some of these things. And every single one of us is in process, and every single one of us, the Lord continues to in our lives say, okay, now roll back the stone there. And we're like, oh, but Jesus... It stinks, as if he doesn't know. But he says, no, I'm about to call that to life. And you gotta start by rolling back the stone. And so I'm so glad that Jesus didn't let Martha head him off in the middle of the process. But instead, he says, did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? I'm convinced that the key verse for this whole chapter is actually John chapter 11, verse four, what we read at the very beginning. John chapter 11, verse four, where Jesus said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
And the reason why the ESV and the NIV translate this verse differently is because they're both trying to take what they understand of what Jesus actually said and make some sense of it for us. Okay, because Jesus' actual statement was incredibly simple. What Jesus actually said here literally is, this illness is not to death. So the NIV says, well, it, it obviously doesn't end in death. And the ESV says, it obviously does not lead to death. And boy, those are valiant attempts. But my favorite is what Jesus actually said. This illness is not to death. Because the next phrase is, but it is to the glory of God. So the actual statement is, this illness is not to death, but it is to the glory of God. The word to is a very final word. Right? Like, you come to a dead end. <laughs> it's kind of one of those things that, I don't know, I think it's, I think of the word to like a preteen who got dumped. In our lives, I think we come to these moments that we're like, that's it, I've come to the end. My life is over. And for those of us who are parents and those of us who are pastors and those of us who've ever tried to counsel a preteen through that moment, you think, you know, I've got a few years on you. <laughs> Take some Tums and it's gonna be okay. <laughs> this is not the end. <laughs> but the word to is, it is not to death ultimately. It is to the glory of God ultimately. Now, the rest of the statement that Jesus makes there is, it is, this illness is not to death, it is to the glory of God, so that the Son of God will be glorified through it. So he's saying, it's not to death, it is to glory. But that doesn't mean you're not going to have to go through death to get to the glory. It's still through the sickness. It's still through the death. It's just not to the death. See, to is a dead end. Through is an on-ramp. To is there's nothing left. Through means we haven't seen the other side of it yet. And isn't the power of the resurrection turning two moments into through moments? Moments that should be the end all of a sudden become not the end. And the resurrection's not the end. And the life is not the end. And the process is not the end. I mean, what I love about this is that it's very clearly Christ in you is the hope of glory. Okay? So where we're at right now, Christ in us, it's awesome. 
but it is not the end-all, be-all. It's not. To understand that, you got to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, where God was, at that time, able to have fellowship with humanity and walk in the garden in the cool of the day with us, be in our very midst. And then we sinned, and we made it so that there was this separation between us. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now no longer can we be in his presence. That's where it begins. And all through scripture then you see these occasions. They're, they're marked with little post-it notes in my Bible. Because we're going to read every single one of them. You see these occasions where God all slowly through a process over many years. All the way through scripture starts taking steps closer into our presence and us into his. And the first one happens after the Israelites are delivered from Egypt. God makes them into a new nation. He makes a new covenant with them. And a vast, I mean like a third or a fourth of Exodus is actually the building of what's called the tabernacle, the tent, where, where, where God's presence is able. And it was supposed to be in the very center of the camp so that people could have the presence of God in and among them, okay? But no sooner had they finished that covenant than what did they do? They sinned. And God said, I cannot be in your midst. He said, I want to be, but I cannot be. Why? Because if I come in your midst, you would die. So he says, take that tabernacle, and I can't be in the center of the camp. So put me just outside. Put me just outside. And they do it. They build this tabernacle, and they put it just outside the camp. And in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Beautiful moment. And in fact, all of it seems the most beautiful moments in scripture, not all of them, but a lot of them are tied to God taking these steps towards us one at a time. Because here, this tabernacle, this tent, that wasn't the end-all, be-all. That was a temporary solution. And the tent wore down, and it disappears. Like, we don't actually see in Scripture exactly what happens to the tabernacle. There's not like, and this is what happened to it, it's over. We can pick up clues from what happened, but somewhere around 400 years later, according to Jeremiah, there was, it probably was destroyed by the Philistines, okay? But it disappears from the record. We don't know what happens to the tabernacle. So what is it replaced with? The temple. Oh, it's no longer a tent. Now it's a house. Still have to have that separation. There still needs to be sacrifices, but now I have a permanent place, a more permanent place in the midst of the holy city, Jerusalem. And what happens when they finish that temple and consecrate it. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out, 
of the holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Again, this incredible moment. And again, the temple was not the permanent thing. Both the tent, the tabernacle, the temple, all of it was pointing to Jesus Christ. Right? John chapter 1, verse 14 says that he is the, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So then God really comes and dwells among us in, the, in Jesus Christ, and, and, and for several decades he's among us in our presence, and then for the last several years he's He's in and among his disciples and these people like Mary and Martha. He is truly dwelling with them. But that wasn't the end all be all. We're not done there either. Because when Jesus dies and he's risen from the grave, he says, now it's about you being the temple. And we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, which says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So now we carry the very presence of God everywhere we go. We go to work, (laughs) presence of God. School, presence of God. At home, presence of God. In our, in our neighborhoods, presence of God. Where we go, the presence of God goes because we are the temple. But guess what? It's still not the end all be all. Christ in you is an incredible, beautiful thing. But this temple still wears down. And it is still temporary. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where are we going to? Well, Revelation 21 verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, that word, tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. See, this is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've been the pastor now. This is my fourth Easter as the pastor of praise. And sooner or later, y'all are going to catch on that every Easter I end in Revelation. And there's a reason for that. Because Christ in you is the hope of glory. 
We haven't gotten to the glory yet. Right? This is where we're headed. And some of us are like, okay, this moment in my life, is this a two moment or is this a through moment? Is this the end or is it not the end? Well, let me ask you, are there tears in your eyes? Are you mourning? Is there still death? Because if the answer to those questions is yes, then it's still a through moment. Through the sickness, through the death, to the glory. And until we get to Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4, we have not yet gotten to the destination. And Christ in me, it's a beautiful thing and I'm so thankful for the fact that I am the temple of God. What an incredible thought. But that is not the permanent solution. It is just a hope for something more. And everything that happens is a through moment. Everything that happens, God speaks into it raises it from the dead and points it to Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4. Because until that day when God himself dwells among his people in a different way than we have ever yet experienced going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, then we are still in the process. And God still speaks resurrection into our lives. He still calls us out. He still says, we're not done yet. We're not there yet. This isn't a two moment. You have to go through this sickness, through this death, to get to the glory of God. But until we get there, we're still on the way. And the power of the resurrection says that whatever the situation, whatever it might be, You're just going through it. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. The power of the resurrection always points us to revelation. So we will always end in revelation. Because that's where it's all going. And until we get there, boy, don't think it's over yet. Because Jesus Christ still in those situations steps into them and calls beauty and destruction and death into life. Until we experience that Revelation 21, it's not over. Thank you for listening. Join us Sundays at 10 a.m. for worship and a message. You belong at praise.